0: So today we will be reading from Luke 11, 37 to 54. So while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people who walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and his sanctuary." Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might
1: say. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I started off our sermon series titled, Conversations with Jesus. And we talked about, in our first week, we talked about Jesus' interaction with a woman with the issue of blood in Luke 8. And it was so incredible to take a moment to really scrutinize and look at how Jesus, far from being annoyed by an interruption... He welcomed this interruption. He welcomed this scandalous act of a ceremonially unclean woman reaching out and touching his robe. In fact, something about this unclean, quote-unquote, woman made him say, even when he was surrounded by people, getting mobbed by the crowd, that although there are many people touching him, only one person truly touched him, and it was this woman. So we talked about what it looks like to be a community that breaks through barriers, breaks through obstacles, and reaches out to grab a hold of his cloak. Last week, we had Pastor JP preaching on Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well, about how Jesus breaks social norms and ethnic divides in order to compassionately meet someone where they are at. And he didn't just talked to her about her, you know, her need, then he actually addressed even the sin in her life. And he did it with such compassion, such winsomeness. He did it in such a way where he didn't let this woman off the hook. He didn't turn a blind eye to her sin. He actually called it out for what it was. And yet he gave it to her in a way that salvaged her dignity, that gave her hope for change and led her into a life that would be about proclaiming. What this man has done for me. And so this week we are shifting gears in terms of what kind of conversations Jesus had here on earth, and I'll be preaching on Jesus and the religious. Jesus and the religious. A couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, it would have been so much easier if Jesus just waved his hand over all of Judea and Samaria and said, everybody be clean. You know, everybody be well. All these demons be cast out. And yet Jesus, as much as he could have done that, he chose to take the time to speak to people one on one. I don't know about you guys, but if I knew that my ministry had to be confined to three years I'm 30, you know, imagine I'm 30, and I'm, I know that until 33, I have three years. I'm not 30, by the way. You looked at me like she's, she's lying, okay? I'm not 30. Imagine I'm 30, and um, I knew that I had three years to make a dent. I had three years to minister. I had three years to heal and cast out demons. I had three years to preach the gospel. If I had three years, I probably would have come up with a, quote-unquote, better, more efficient plan to spend my time here it's limited every day counts and so every day i'm going to preach to masses every day i'm going to heal as many people as i can i'll probably come up with a plan in order to maximize my time and yet jesus didn't seem to be in a rush when he was here he knew that every person that he needed to talk to was a divine appointment that every word that was exchanged it wasn't a waste of time that it was necessary to have all these one-on-ones it was necessary to have these moments of sitting down with people dining with them hearing their 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 lives hearing their stories and being able to speak into that in such a compassionate way now when we see jesus's interactions all through the gospels with religious people it's so interesting how jesus Interacts with religious people. And I would say out of all the different interactions that I see throughout the Gospels, this is probably what resonates with me personally the most. How he approaches religious people. I probably resonate most profoundly with the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes. Because growing up, I was a straight-laced, goody-two-shoes, teacher's pet kind of person growing up. My one act of rebellion was to go into ministry. That was my one act of rebellion. That's how I chose to use that card to go into full-time ministry. And so I grew up being diligent in my studies, obedient to my parents, good to my teachers, devoted in my church. And I was the kind of kid that your parents would compare you to. They'd be like, why can't you be more like, you know, I was that kid. It was, it was a blessing and a curse in many ways, right? I hated to be that example. And my friends would kind of like, like love me, but also hate me in some ways. Uh, that was the kind of life that I lived. And so for much of my life, it was very like, uh, I'm a very law abiding person, a very straight laced person. And so when I read this in these interactions with G, between Jesus and the Pharisees, I tend to resonate The most with it. I see my life and my mentality, the way that I process things so clearly reflected in the way that the Pharisees, the scribes and the teachers of law would speak and would process things. Now, I love how Jesus, far from, you know, keeping his distance from these people, he chooses to get up close and personal with them. I don't know. I don't. I am not a very confrontational person to begin with. But I know that if I, have, if I have beef with somebody, I'd rather not talk to them. I'd rather kind of, you know, spend my attention and my time with people that I don't have beef with. And yet Jesus chooses to get up close and personal, and things get very real, very fast. He is in. The same compassion that he reached out to the sick, to the broken, to the demonized. With that same compassion, he actually chooses to sit down and dine with people that he knew hated him. And he is so committed to this relationship. He is so jealous for true, vulnerable, and honest worship that he will risk being rude, He will risk being confrontational. He will risk being disruptive in order to open their eyes and, by extension, open our eyes to our true spiritual poverty outside of his grace. Now, Jesus, he ruffled a lot of feathers in his time, but none of that was in vain. All of it was in compassion. All of it was in kindness. All of it was with this agenda to bring people to the truth. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. He was fighting for their souls. He was fighting for the state of their minds and the state of their hearts. And in that way, Jesus chooses to sit down and dine with these Pharisees and these lawyers. The text calls them lawyers, but... Uh, It's not actually like judicial law. It's actually religious law. So these are people who have memorized every law there is to memorize in the Old Testament. They know all the ins and outs. They know exactly what to do and what to not do, what you can get away with, what you can't get away with. They probably memorized it. They probably had, you know, uh, a thing here on their forehead and in their arm where they had actually written it out because they're interpreting the law very literally. And so these are the people whose full-time job is to know the word of God. Their full-time job is to be seen as religious leaders in their community. And Jesus goes in there with compassion, but also with truth to confront some very deeply rooted lies in their belief. There's three things that I want to talk about today that Jesus wars against in this brief passage. Now, the first thing that Jesus wages war against is on self righteousness. Jesus wages war on self righteousness. Jesus will not allow for empty religious piety, He will not allow for meaningless tradition, He will not allow for loveless routine. He is not okay with that. Now, I wonder how Jesus would feel if he walked into our churches today. How much of empty religious piety he would see. How much of meaningless tradition he would see. How much of loveless routine he would see. In the words of a pastor called Scott Harris, this is what he said. In this case, in our society today... People try to wash their hands with soap and water or some kind of disinfectant lotion to reduce the risk of getting sick from any germs that are on the hands. But the Pharisees only did a ceremonial washing with water as a ritual to remove defilement from being in contact with the world and make their hands holy. They would dip their hands, literally baptize their hands before eating in a bowl of water. Now, the water wasn't necessarily clean, but it was a tradition. It had less to do. So if you guys are saying like, oh, you know, the the Pharisees and the lawyers were saying, hey, you should probably wash your hands before eating. You never know what you've touched. It's not about hygiene. We're not talking about hygiene in this case. We're talking about ceremonial washing. And so in this case, Jesus was not against washing. But he was against rituals that would give a false sense of righteousness. Jesus was against these rituals that were mindless. But in the Pharisees' minds, they gave them a sense of righteousness. Before they dipped their hands, they're like, oh no, I'm defiled. Now that I've dipped my hands, okay, now I'm righteous before God. Now I'm blameless. Now I'm clean. And it was this ritual, this mindless root that they were so used to. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It had nothing to do with that. It had actually to do with a sense and a false sense of righteousness. Now, Jesus is so committed to exposing our many ways that we tend to justify our own sins. We tend to justify our own defilement. And we have our own ways of... You know, having these routines of self-righteousness. Do you know that coming to church on Sunday doesn't make you clean? You know that, right? I'm hoping that you're here for different reasons. But coming to church on Sunday doesn't make you clean. Right? Please say yes. Okay. Okay, we've done our job. Okay. We're preaching the gospel. Good. Okay. Attending house church doesn't make you clean. I'm sure it helps, but it doesn't make you clean. Reading your Bible in the morning or whatever, you know, nook of time you have throughout the day, that in itself doesn't make you clean. Nothing short of the blood of Jesus spilled for you on the cross, nothing short of that can make you clean. Everything that we do as Christians, as followers of Christ, it comes as a response to being made whole, being made righteous through what Jesus alone has done for us. And that is the gospel. That is the reason why we gather here today. That is the reason why we attend our house churches. That is the reason why we lift our hands in worship. The reason is because Jesus alone has justified us in the eyes of god our father and now being made pure being made righteous now we get to come to church now we get to commune with one another we get to partake in communion we get to you know serve our children we get to do all these things because of what jesus has done so don't fool yourselves into thinking hey I came to church last Sunday. I'm thinking this purity will last me for at least seven days. I've got seven days of purity. That is not what we believe in. Just because you open up your, your Bible, you know, you could memorize entire Bible if you want it. But if Jesus hasn't done a redemptive work in your heart, you are just as sinful, just as unclean, just as unrighteous as you were before you did that. You could attend every Sunday without ever missing a Sunday your entire life for 80 years. You could do that and you'd be just as sinful, just as defiled, just as unrighteous before the eyes of God. If Jesus doesn't do supernatural redemptive work in your heart, that is the power of the gospel. It is coming before the Lord, knowing that I have no way to save myself No amount of Sundays coming to church, no amount of house church gatherings, no amount of verses that I memorize can save me from my sinful state. It has to be Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, we in today's, you know, Christianity, we tend to like to add to the gospel a lot. That Jesus saves, but, right? But, you know, but I must be, you know, if Jesus makes me righteous as I must, I must be righteous plus because I go to church every Sunday. I must be righteous plus because I serve in our ministry teams. I must be righteous plus because I do this and that. That is one way that we lie to ourselves and we believe that we can add to what Jesus has done by doing all these different things. Let me tell you, that is a miserable way to live you begin to live a life that is enslaved to these rituals, enslaved to these, you know, things that are supposed to be a gift. They're supposed to be, man, I get to do this. You don't have to come. I get to come. It's supposed to be a life-giving, you know, a life-giving transformation, a life-giving invitation into walking this walk as a Christian. And yet, if we begin to attribute Meaning to these different things as, oh, this is going to make me more righteous in the eyes of God. That is the moment where we have devalued the gospel. We have devalued what Jesus has done for us. And we've begun to elevate what we are able to do to save our own selves. And so Jesus is just so committed. He says, hey, do not be deceived. All these things that you're doing. Oh, this like, oh, Jesus didn't wash his hands. Oh my gosh, he must be defiled. You know, he's like, what are you talking about right now? First of all, I'm Jesus. (laughs) You know, I'm the son of God. Second of all, how do you think that dipping your hands into this little bowl of water is going to make you clean before the eyes of God? Can't you see that your problem isn't the outside? Your problem isn't your fingers. Your problem is your soul. You're still sinful inside. And you can't just be cleansing your fingers and thinking, oh, I'm going to call it a day. Now I'm right before the Lord. He's like you have sin in your heart. You have problems with your soul. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. There's going to be hope if we address that. No amount of doing this into a bowl of water is going to make you clean. And so he so lovingly doesn't let them off the hook. He so lovingly exposes Hey, that is a way in which you're trying to earn your righteousness before God. You can't do that. No matter how much you cleanse yourself, no matter how much you do this, you're not going to be clean before the Lord because your problem isn't, you know, you're outside. Your problem is on the inside. You need cleansing inside. How do you do that? You can't do that outside the grace of God. And so Jesus... You know, he just goes for it. He wages war on this idea of self-righteousness. Of like, man, all these heathens outside, they don't wash their hands. And this guy, Jesus, he doesn't wash his hands either. But I, I am clean because I do this little thing, this little ritual before eating. And Jesus is like, that has nothing to do with righteousness. That has nothing to do with your standing before God. And so he is merciless when it comes to the Pharisees and the lawyers way of justifying their own selves before God. I love that he is merciless in that way. He loves them enough to confront them. Because sometimes We as a church, we look at people outside the church and we're like, well, they don't tithe. Well, they don't go to church. Well, they don't sing praises to God. And sometimes in our own minds, we are starting to, maybe we don't do this dipping thing, but we do a lot of other things that make us feel justified before God. And Jesus, he goes right to the religious leaders. He goes to the, you know, today equivalent would be, he goes to a pastor's meeting. That's what he does. That, that would be the, the equivalent of today. You would go right into the middle of a pastor's meeting and say, like, Hey, these ways of self-justification, self-righteousness, they're not working. There's a problem in here. Hopefully that's not the problem with many pastors, but that's my point. You know, my point is he goes right to the religious leaders who should know the best, the people who should know the law the best, the people who should know about God's nature the best, and he goes right into the middle of that and says, Hey... That which you're doing right now is not going to save you. You need to come before God with your sins and get cleansed on the inside. This is mercy. This is grace. I don't know about you guys, but I would hate to live a whole life that is devoted to these things that I think are earning me something. And then reach the end of my life and realize that they were meaningless. Can you imagine that? You spend 80 years of your life doing all these things that you think are leading you somewhere, getting you somewhere. And nobody was honest enough with you to say like, hey, that is not going to get you anywhere. Hey, that is not your problem right now. There's something much bigger that you need to deal with. And that's on the inside. I love how Jesus loves them enough to confront them in that way. He very well could have just let them be. He's like, hey, you do your thing doesn't really matter. I'm just going to hang out here with the broken people, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He could have done that. And yet in his loving kindness, he chooses to take time to sit with them, to dine with them, to bring to the surface, those things that they're so blind to. And he addresses that and confronts it in love and in truth. You know how in our house churches, we're studying the seven letters in the book of revelation. It's not the seven letters to pagans, right? It's, It's to churches. It's to Christians. Jesus takes the time to address not those out there who don't know God. He addresses people who know God, who know his word. And he, in loving kindness, he says, hey, these things I really admire about what you are doing, but these things you need to repent of. And that is God's mercy on his church. That is God's mercy on Christians. That is God's mercy on his people. He calls people out in order to bring forth repentance and a turning back to him. And that is what he does with the Pharisees and teachers of the law as well. Second thing that Jesus wages war against is he wages war on self-importance. He starts out with self-righteousness and then he goes after self-importance. Now, when there is an underlying sense of self-righteousness, you end up with an underlying sense of self-importance because if self-righteousness means through my own means and through my own efforts, I am clean and righteous, then self-importance means through my own means and through my own efforts, I am cleaner and I'm more righteous than you. That is self-importance. One more time. Righteousness means I'm clean because of what I've done. Self-importance means means i'm cleaner than you i'm more righteous than you because of what i've done now if you think you are immune to self-importance let me ask you this question have you ever listened to a sermon when you're like oh my gosh so and so needs to hear the sermon right right oh my gosh my spouse needs to hear the sermon oh my gosh my roommate needs to hear the sermon you know what i mean That is self importance, you know? That is when you listen to something instead of, oh my gosh, this is so convicting, I need to repent, I need to change. You're like worried about someone else, you know? You're worried about this person really needs to change. I need to change, but they really need to change, you know? That is self importance. It's that insidious thought in your mind that you're better off than someone else in some imaginary scale. Because of your righteousness. And if only they'd change, if only they'd listen to the sermon, if only they'd believe in God better, if only they'd repent, the world would be a better place. That is self-importance. Now, this was obviously the case for the Pharisees and the lawyers, and it's often the case for us as well. These Pharisees and lawyers, they had mentally calculated their standing before God in terms of righteousness, and that gave them an inflated sense of self-importance. We see in the text that although these religious teachers of the law would pay lip service to the idea of humility and service and true devotion to God, their actions betrayed their true thoughts because when it came time to be honored, they were first in line. When it came time to be, you know, respected and admired, they were first in line. They all too easily gravitated towards the places of greatest honor. They all too easily expected people's esteem and respect. They naturally looked down on others while propping themselves up in a self-serving religious system. They make the rules. And they're the ones who benefit the most they loved playing this you know humility shtick right where they made sure everybody knew that they're fasting you know they're like oh, oh no i'm just you know i'm just a little hungry why why oh i'm just fasting i just love the lord so much and it's just so hard you know or like oh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna tie this little herb and this mint and cumin and you know whatever and, and they're like, oh, I just want to make sure, you know, that everything I have, even even the slightest little grain and powder, like I'm tithing. They were just so, so taken over by this idea of I need to make sure that everybody knows just how religious I am, just how good of a follower of the law I am. They were they, they had, you know, designed their entire lives to be something that broadcasts just how righteous they are before God. They need to make sure that everybody knew how much of the Torah they knew. They need to make sure that everybody knew how much they sacrificed and how much they fasted and how fastidiously they tithed. And in fact, this is why Jesus addresses this. These teachers of the law, they took the commandments of God, and they said, well, okay, you know, this, the commandments of the law, what's written here, what's explicitly asked for, you know, this is for the general public, but I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm actually going to make rules of my own, and I'm going to start tithing things that aren't required to be tithed. I'm going to start doing things that aren't actually required by this, and in this way, I'm going to, you know, it's like, you can be righteous before God. I'm going to make myself another tier, I'm going to give myself a a couple more, you know, rungs in the ladder to be more righteous than everybody else. And so by that, everybody's kind of like a little less righteous than I am. They feel that sense of self-importance. You know, life will test your character through trials, through conflict, through difficult situations that require the wisdom of God, through struggles that will bring you to the end of your rope. But nothing, and I mean nothing, will test your character like success. Nothing will test your character like success. Because it's very easy to see your need for God. It's very easy to see your need for grace when you're down in the dumps. Right when your life is a mess when things are imploding when things are outside of your control It's very hard to deny, you know, you just look around and you're like, oh my gosh, I need god Oh my gosh, but what happens when people start patting you in the back? What happens when you get that promotion? What happens when you start going up that ladder? What happens when people begin to acknowledge and validate your achievements? What happens when people want to be like you or want to be around you? you What happens when popularity and favor comes your way? Are you able to see your need for God then? That is a test of character. That is a test of how much you believe in the gospel. When you're successful, when you feel like you are achieving better than other people in some imaginary scale, that is when you actually know what your faith is made of. So self-importance, it is something that is so subtle that creeps into our mentality. Now, you might say, you might say, look, Pastor Susie, I understand what you're saying, but that's just not me. That's just not me. You know, I um, I actually struggle with self-esteem. I actually struggle with self-hatred and self-condemnation. I have a hard time loving myself. I have a hard time being confident in who I am. So that's just not me. I'm glad that this applies to other people, but this sense of self-importance just doesn't apply to me. But did you know there is a certain pride and self-importance in self-condemnation too? It is, it looks like, reading this book that says, hey, you're made in the image of God. Hey, what Jesus has done for you, it really can't compare to any of the achievements you've made in life. God cares for you. He knows you by name. He knows even the number of hairs on your head. It's reading this book and saying, well, I don't know if I believe this, you know? I am going to actually let my opinion or my perspective or my feelings or my experience dictate what I hold to be true. So I have a final word in the end. This thing can tell me all at once, but uh, if I'm unlovable, then that is the truth. That supersedes how true this is. Uh, I have the final word. I hold the ultimate truth. God, you are wrong, and I am right. So even in self-hatred, even in self-condemnation, even in lack of self-esteem, there's actually a hidden pride there too. Although it doesn't look like it, and it's very hard to pinpoint, pride is there. Pride is there as well. So we are all susceptible to self-importance. It's not a certain kind of person. It's actually all of us, all of us. Whether it manifests as like, hey, I am the bomb, everybody should admire me, or like, oh, I I just hope nobody notices me today, and I hate myself, and I wish I were different, I wish I was like that person. Those are all forms of self-importance. It doesn't matter how they manifest, it is still the same root. And Jesus wages war against that. In the case of the Pharisees, it was loving the attention of men, loving the attention of people. Everywhere I walked, they were like, ah, yeah, moksanim. Oh, yeah, Oh, Tagish, you know? It was kind of like that thing, and they just loved it, you know? They just loved walking into places and getting so much honor from people. They began to live for that. And Jesus was pinpointing that sense of self importance. Jesus wages war against that. He says, first of all, you're not righteous before God just by doing your little traditions. And second, you're looking down on everybody else. You think you're somehow, you know, above and, you know, in a different level from everybody else. And that is a lie. So Jesus wages war on self-righteousness. He wages war on self-importance. And lastly, Jesus wages war on self-deception. Because as much as Jesus confronted them, I believe the Pharisees and lawyers, they actually believed that they were righteous. They actually have convinced themselves that I am righteous before God because this is what I do. And I'm actually better off than other people because this is what I do. And they had actually begun to believe this lie that they are better off and they don't need the grace of God. Self-righteousness and self-importance eventually will lead you to self-deception because there is a blindness to your blindness. Does that make sense? There's a blindness to your blindness. You begin to believe what is not true. Physically blind people weren't the only ones that Jesus was trying to heal from blindness. These religious elites, just as much as a blind man crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. Just as much as they were blind, Jesus was meeting with these religious elites and these religious leaders and saying, Hey, you're just as blind as that guy. You actually need just as much healing as they do. These religious elites were blind to the fact that they were blind. It wasn't a physical blindness, but it was a spiritual one. Now, you know, you don't find yourself in a place of spiritual blindness overnight. You don't find yourself in a place of sin overnight. You don't find yourself in a life of lies and, you know, of of living away from God's will overnight. It's actually a progression It's actually one step at a time, and we see that in Romans 1. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul delineates what happens to mankind when we're left to our own devices. It starts off by thinking, you know, there is no God. We don't glorify him. We don't give thanks to him. We don't acknowledge him in our life. Then our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Then you begin to claim you are wise, but you become fools as you exchange a God who is eternal with lesser gods that do not satisfy. It could be money, success, people's you know, admiration, earthly happiness. You can name your idol, but you begin to switch that place, the place that rightfully belongs to God. You begin to exchange it for other things that will not satisfy. This is the progression. This is how you end up like a Pharisee. This is how you end up like a teacher of the law. You start by thinking, I don't need God. You begin to not acknowledge him. Then your mind and your heart becomes darkened and your thinking becomes futile. This is why in Romans 3, we see the Apostle Paul saying, what shall we conclude then? Are Jews any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is not one righteous. There's not one. It doesn't matter how much of the Torah you've memorized. There is not one righteous. It doesn't matter how much of your income you give. There is not one righteous. Doesn't matter how much you serve, doesn't matter how much you give, doesn't matter how much you sacrifice, there is not one righteous, not even one. That is the diagnosis of humankind. There's not one righteous. But here's the grace of God. You know how that sentence ends? It says, there's not one righteous, not even one. And then it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Not just some. All all have fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it ends with uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You and I here today, the only thing that makes us righteous is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Doesn't matter that my title is pastor, I am without God's grace in my life, I am the worst of sinners. That's what Apostle Paul says. I am the worst of sinners. I am worse than all of you guys. I am the sinner of sinners without the grace of God in my life. If Jesus hadn't done what he did, I'll be no better off than anybody else. It doesn't matter what kind of label I slap on myself, doesn't matter what kind of righteous acts I do, I am just as lost. I'm just as broken. I'm just as dead. Than anybody else doesn't matter if I go around this title pastor in my life That means nothing outside the grace of god That is the gospel that jesus came to preach I think it's easier for jesus to preach to people that know that they are in sin and they know that they're broken And they need god's grace And it's so much harder when jesus has to preach to people who don't feel like they need god Hey, I go to church. What do you mean? Like, hey, I tithe, what do you mean? Haven't you seen me fasting? What do you mean? It is so much harder for Jesus to convince people who are so self-righteous in their own minds, so self-important, so self-deceived in their own mind that they actually need God and they need God's grace. Now, I want to end with this. Once again, you know, sometimes Jesus gets a bad rep or Pharisees get a bad rep when, when Jesus interacts with them. It's like jesus is so nice to people and then when it comes to Pharisees, like woe to you and woe to you and woe and woe and six woes, right? That the whole passage was six different woes It's like whoa jesus like calm down like you must really hate them It's actually because he loves them. I want us to change our mindset It's not that jesus loved all these people and that he really hated these people It's like jesus is fighting for their souls Jesus is lovingly confronting. Jesus is diagnosing their spiritual ailment that they are unwilling and unable to see. And in love, in order to set them free, he wants them to be free so badly that he's willing to confront. He wants them to be free so badly that he's willing to offend and insult. He's willing to do these things in order for them to be free. We are drowning in our self-righteousness, in our self-importance, in our self-deception. And Jesus came in, he sat down, and he dined with us. And he began to fight for our freedom from those things. It's not that, it's, look, it's not that Jesus doesn't want you to think that you are righteous. It's not that he doesn't want you to feel important. It's not like he doesn't want you to see the truth. It's quite the opposite, actually. Jesus wants you to know that you are valuable. Jesus wants you to know that you are righteous. Jesus wants you to know the truth about yourself, but it must be through the lens of a crucified life that has been given everything by grace simply because of what Jesus has done. That is the big difference. We as Christians, we're not called to, okay, shoot, I can't think of myself as self-important. I can't be self-righteous, and so I'm going to mope around and be, you know, like, oh, woe is me, and I'm such a filthy sinner, and there's no hope for me. That's not the kind of life that you're called to live as a Christian. You're called to know that you are righteous through Christ. You're called to know that you are important through Christ. You're called to know what the truth is through Christ. Jesus wants those things for you. It's not like he's trying to rain on your parade. He just wants you to know that it's only through Christ that you are those things. The the Christian life isn't supposed to be one of self-condemnation and guilt. Jesus wants you to know that you're made clean, that you're important, that you're treasured, that you are precious, and that you're able to see rightly, but it needs to be on his terms and through his grace. It needs to be through the lens of a life that has been washed clean and made new through Jesus' sacrifice. A life that is resurrected from self-righteousness into the righteousness of God. A life that is not self-defeating and self-incriminating and self-sabotaging, but a life that is cleansed from self-importance, and now we find our importance in Christ. A life that is no longer walking in self-deception we as Christians, we are able to love God simply because he loved us first. That's the only reason why we're able to stand before him. He loved us first. We were dead. We weren't even struggling. We were dead in our transgressions. There was no hope for us. And Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. And now we find ourselves in a place where we can now Approach the throne of grace we can now sing his praises we can now gather with his people we can now believe that we have a hope and a future all these things are made possible simply because of what jesus has done he loved us first he's the one true hero of the story he's the one true merciful servant he was the one who came to free us from self-righteousness self-importance and self-deception no matter what kind of background we have no matter you know how long we've been christians for doesn't matter what kind of denomination you are there's one thing that is true of all of us and that is that we all have a bit of pharisee inside of us we all have a little bit of a teacher of the law inside of us we have a bit of self-righteousness and self-importance and self-deception and we need the grace of christ We need to invite him into our homes. We need to invite him onto our dining table. Instead of feeling insulted and offended by his gracious honesty, we need to let down our guards. We need to lay down our self-justifying ways, our excuses, our rhetoric, our indignation, and receive his life-giving, eye-opening invitation to be truly free. That is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't, what marks as a Christian isn't that you're here today, this morning. What marks as a Christian is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Can I have the praise team come up? Now, whether... Whether you feel like you would identify yourself as a religious leader, as a Pharisee, or a lawyer, or you identify more with the tax collector, or the prostitute, or, you know, whatever other character Jesus interacted with. It is still true of every person that he talked to, and that was they needed Jesus. They needed his grace. They needed his truth. They were lost and hopeless without him. None of these people earned their righteousness before. And so I want us to take a moment. I want to ask us just simply to close our eyes. Just close our eyes for just a few minutes. And I want us to dialogue with the Holy Spirit. I want us to ask the question, Jesus, is this me? Jesus, is this me? This Pharisee, this lawyer, is this me? Are you putting your finger on Something that you see in me that needs forgiveness that needs repentance that needs cleansing that cannot come any other way than through your grace is this me do I react in defensiveness do I react in self-justification do I see others as less important or less holy than me living for the applause of man am i eager to make sure that people just know how much i sacrifice they know how much i give they know how much i honor your word am i eager for that? are there parts of my heart that need your grace today set us free from those things that bind our minds and our thoughts. He can come before the only one who had every right. He had every right to exert his self-righteousness. He can exert his importance. And yet he chose to live the life of a servant. He chose to be a servant of all. He chose to lay down his very own life for people who did not deserve it, did not earn it. We get to come before Jesus, the Savior of sinners, today. We get to accept his grace. We don't have to muster it up. We don't have to work ourselves up to it. We simply receive like a child. We open our hands and we receive that grace today. We say before him, Jesus, we need you today. We are nothing without you today. Our only hope, our only salvation is in you. Our only righteousness is in you. Our only boast is in you. Everything that we have in our life is thanks to you. Father, as I pray over this community today, I ask God that yes, we'd be known to be a people who are passionate. We know as a people who honor your presence would be known as all these different things. But we would also be known as a people who are clinging fast to the gospel people who are clinging to your grace day in and day out, a people who never graduate from the good news of the gospel, what you've done for us, a people who never get so godly or so holy that we feel like we are exempt from your grace, but somebody else needs it, but not me. We'll be known as a people who live in your grace, a people whose thoughts and perspective have been transformed through your grace, a people whose hearts have been opened because of your grace, a people whose lives live out your gospel because of your grace. May that be the kind of church that you're building here today. May that be the kind of people that you're gathering here today, a people who love you because you loved us first. Father, for your grace that is real and that is true and is waiting in our lives today. We thank you that the gospel is more than just an idea or a philosophy. It is a truth that we get to walk in today. We thank you, Father, for your work in our lives. We thank you for your grace in our lives we ask father that if ever we stray if ever our hearts become hardened if ever we begin to fall into self-righteousness and self-importance and self-deception that you would be so kind you'd be so compassionate as to draw us back to where we need to be if that is us today let that be today may today be that moment of reckoning where you sit across from us and you speak to us the truth. You speak to us in compassion and in kindness. May we be a church that heeds the voice of the Spirit, that has ears to hear, and a church that walks out, lives out, this good news that we have received. We you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.